Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture of His podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 193, and today's guest is Shane Hegday, co-founder and CEO of Air. Digital asset management is not a new term, but the number of assets that are being generated by companies is exploding, which in return makes it very challenging to collaborate and keep tabs on everything. Let's look at VentureFizz as an example. We have videos, audio files, images, and more spread throughout Google Drive, Dropbox, Canva, multiple hard drives, and probably several other spots that I'm forgetting. Air is taking on this problem head on as they're building the collaboration platform for your team's visual work. The company just announced a $12 million Series A round of funding led by Tiger Global. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like the belief that every company and individual is a media company, Shane's background growing up in Toledo and his decision to attend Stanford where he met his co-founder Tyler Strand, his prior company Swap Mobile and his experience as an investor and what these experiences taught him, all the details on Air in terms of the founding story to where the company and platform is today, what it was like fundraising during the pandemic, advice for founders on building their core initial team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. We have a rapidly growing library of video content on VentureFizz. You'll find lots of great company interviews where you'll learn about their product, people, and culture. Plus, we have lots of career advice videos to help you with your professional journey. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash videos to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Shane. Shane, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. Super excited to, to dig in. I'm excited to talk to you too because this, this uh, podcast that we're recording is very timely. Yesterday, you just announced $18 million in fresh funding. So we're going to talk about fundraising in a pandemic in a little bit, not right now, because uh, that's a very challenging situation. But let's, let's talk about this interesting topic that I read from a prior blog post that um, you, know, you and, and Air, the company you're building, has this belief that every company and individual is a media company. And I think yeah. this was based off of like a, a TED talk too. So, so what does that mean? Yeah. You know, my, my co-founder and I have spent our careers at the intersection of media and technology, and we just love this space. It's, it's a passion point for both of us. And we saw two trends emerge, um, you know, a few years ago that kicked us off into this business. And, and those two were one, this belief that every company, regardless of industry was using images, videos, PDFs on an ongoing basis to tell their story visual storytelling um, was quickly becoming visual work and, and visual work was becoming centric to how businesses grew and operated. Um, today, if you don't have a presence on social, if you don't have a blog, if you're not you know, out there, you're showing yourself to your customers, um, then you know, you, you're, not, you're not a high growth business. And so um, you know, as, as we saw that trend emerging, we were understanding that if businesses were going to be able to execute on this need for visual work, they're going to need the right infrastructure to do it. Um, and what was also becoming fascinating, Keith, is that you know it was slowly becoming not just the marketing department. It wasn't just marketing or creative. It was sales, partnerships, ops, product. Everybody needed to work with visual data on an ongoing basis. Um, and so you know it was really the convergence of those two things that serve as the pillar that we're building this business around. Um, and it took us a long time to really hone in that thesis and refine it. But, you know, it was, it was a fundamental belief to your point that first every business is a media company and then trying to answer the why. 
and, and that's so true. I mean, like if we're just focused on this topic, like air solving a problem that I certainly deal with, and I'll talk about that in a bit, but even like, I think about my 14 year old daughter, who's a freshman in high school. She loves field hockey and she has aspirations to play field hockey for a school someday in college. Yeah. And, you know, so she's, you know, we're literally talking about digital asset management. Like she's got to create videos. She's got to create, you know, this <laughs> There's whole- no way you're talking to your daughter about digital asset management. No one wants to talk about it. <laughs> I didn't use that term, but I'm like, well, yes, start creating videos of totally. playing so that, you know, if you do want college coaches to check out your profile. Absolutely. It's absolutely. Totally, she's a, she's a, a media company now. The, you know, the, the, the pillars of our product, Keith, are storage, organization, and collaboration. And storage is table stakes. And from my perspective, we do storage better than anybody else. You know, 95% of our customers migrate from Dropbox and G Drive. They come to us because we're a space designed and built for visual assets. So just the user experience around that is going to be better. Um, but they, they stay and they retain and we solve their problems because of the organization and collaboration piece. You know, your, your daughter, you know, is operating like a little production company, putting out content, She's got to organize all of it and structure it with you and her coach and her teammates. And then she's got to collaborate with, you know, different teams she's trying to, or coaches she's trying to pitch to, to get her involved. So, you know, I think that, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, we're an enterprise software company. Um, and the beauty is we still are able as a self-service product-led growth business, we're still solving that individual use case of, you know, your daughter or a freelance designer or a photographer or an architect who works with images, videos, and PDFs through something that is much more serious than whatever ends up in their camera roll on their phone. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, let's talk about you, Shane. So re rewind the clock. Like, where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, a, it's not too exciting. Sorry, I grew up in middle of America. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. It is 30 minutes south of Detroit. Uh, my family all lives in Mumbai, India. Um, and, uh, I moved to, to California for school. I went out to squad at Stanford. Um, and, and my co-founder was from New York. Um, so I, you know, I think we have the best of both worlds, a, a small time kid and a, and a kid who really understands the way that this big world works. And, uh, you know, Tyler's a year younger than me at Stanford and, and we met there his freshman year, my, my sophomore year and ended up, ended up living together at school. So, so what was the experience like at Stanford? I mean, you just always hear about, you know, it's just such entrepreneurial culture and, and then you started a company. So I wasn't sure when that exactly happened. Yeah. You know, I think the, the best gift that Stanford gives you is this, you know, I don't know how to characterize it other than like blind confidence. Um, you know, your first day at orientation and, and, it, and, it's, and it's real too, it's well-founded and it has merit, but you know, that they're like, you have an at stanford.edu email and they don't say it in a pretentious way, but they're like, you have an at stanford.edu email address. You can anybody, you can email anybody in the world and, and they might answer. Um, and you know, as a, as a kid from Ohio, you know, <laughs> you know, that, that like just, you know, my, my Stanford questionnaire, I was like, what is an iPhone? Um, I don't have one. Um, and they're asking me what my favorite app is. Uh, you know, it, it's daunting hearing that. And, and I think, a lot of Stanford kids in their first year have this imposter syndrome because of it. Cause they're like, can I really email these people and do all these crazy things that my peers are doing or my roommate or these people across campus. Um, and so I think that it instills this confidence in you uh, in the right way that um, allows you to just follow your passions and, and find out what your vocation is purely based off of your interests, um, which is super powerful when you're young. Um, 
you know, and then as far as the, the first company, you know, as you can imagine, I started off as an English major because I love creative writing and then ended up into computer science and, and finance um, in this oh. department called STS. And, you know, I, I dropped out of school my sophomore year um, because it seemed like it was a fun thing to do. Yeah, and, do. <laughs> and yeah, I loved it. I, I started this company, uh, Swap, my, my sophomore year, sort of like a, a bank for college kids. Um, so think, uh, you know, a mixture of like a bank and Venmo. It was positioned for first time bankers, which constituted like 70% of net new ads at, at most banks. Um, and I worked with this great uh, early stage investor named Pejman Nazad, um, who now runs Pair Ventures. Uh, to get that going. And, and, you know, we had a team of five on University Avenue and we're going to Coupa and, you know, doing the, the startup thing. And it was a, it was a really good punch in the face. Um, you know, I, I was 18 years old. I knew nothing. You know, we raised, you know, a little, what would be called a pre-seed today or what was a seed then. Um, and uh, I learned a lot. You know, I, I learned a lot about relationships. I learned a lot about failure. I learned a lot about focus. Focus, I think, was the biggest lesson to take away from from all of that. And I think it's really helped us on this product led growth journey where, you know, it's three to five years of misery until you find and, and have time to really build a strong platform and then you can scale from there. So I think that that was the, the biggest takeaway. Um, and Tyler had a similar journey, albeit way more successful. He started a company at school um, and then ended up selling it his senior year um, in the, in a live streaming space. Wow. So he started a company while in school. Yeah, he, he's he's wow. the more successful one. I'm just the one with the bigger mouth. And so like, <laughs> this is, it's my job to get on the podcast, but um, you know, Tyler, Tyler's amazing. He studied computer science with a focus in human computer action at school. Um, and, you know, I think everybody around him just knows that he's, he's always finds a way to just have it figured out. Um, he started a, a company with a couple of friends in school. They dropped out and he stayed on. Um, and was a CEO there and, and let its way through the tumbleweeds of early stage need finding with, with the product and sold it to this publicly traded business called SFX Entertainment in New York um, that owns products like Beatport. Um, and then Tyler became the, the head of live streaming over there. And, uh, you know, I, the coolest thing is for any kid who wants to build a product, it's, it's amazing just to see your product get used. The fundraising stories are fantastic, blah, 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 but like, to see your product actually get used and people find value in it. And uh, Tyler's, Tyler's company um, ended up, you know, being the backbones for what became the live streaming services for Tomorrowland and Rock and Rio and all these major music festivals. And he got to see a million concurrence, you know, over a million concurrence use his, his technology that he, he labored over for years. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic story. That's, that's so cool. So, so you did end up graduating though, right? I did. I did. My, you know, I, I'm, I'm Indian and my mother was, was damn sure I went back to school and got my degree. Um, I ended up actually graduating in four years. I did the startup for a year and a half um, and then came back to school and basically did double the course load for my senior year, uh, which was miserable in some ways, but I got to, to graduate on time and, and I was dying to go back into work and, and learn so that I wouldn't make the same mistakes. So what'd you do next? You know, I, I thought that I, there, was a, there was a ton of, of known unknowns that I learned through that startup experience. And uh, my first thought to solve them was to work, you know, as much as I could with business executives 
in order to understand how to become one. Um, and from my perspective, the best way to do that was to go in on the investing side. Um, I thought a lot about going into like, you know, the fintech space and was talking like Square and Facebook and figuring out if like, it would be interesting to go there. Um, <laughs> you know, I might regret this financially, but there is this crypto opportunity that I was looking at um, that I got kicked into just because I was looking at, at fintech that I, that I passed on and, you know, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have always sort of tried to optimize for like, what's the next thing I'm trying to learn and who can teach me it. Um, and this guy had, had come in and, and was going to participate in our series A at, at that first company. Uh, and his name was Scott Kapnick. And he, you know, it was, was, was running this private equity firm in New York. Um, and while I was finishing my degree, I was talking to him a lot about his private tech investments that he was making. Uh, I told him not to invest in us because we were coming into financial, you know, challenges and it just wasn't the right move. Um, and so, you know, I started working with him and, and building a relationship and he said, Hey Shane, you know, why don't you come out and, and start working with our, with our team? And as I was talking through like what I wanted to learn and how I could learn it. Um, and I, and I went out and met the team at, at Highbridge Prince HPS partners and, and loved it. Um, I thought that it was totally different than investment professionals in Silicon Valley. I knew I knew nothing and I was gonna, you know, get beat up on Wall Street a bit. Um, but I, I thought that I would be better for it. And so I moved out to New York, started working at at Highbridge in, in 2013, HPS Partners. I'm sorry that they've rebranded. And um, it was amazing. Uh, it was working in private equity. Uh, it was a TMT growth fund. Um, we would write, you know, let's call it 20 to $50 million checks. And I focused a lot on our media and tech investments um, and really fell in love with that intersection. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there are a million lessons learned amongst that, that experience. But uh, the best thing is that I had, I had mentors in the office who, you know, I still look up to and, and talk to and learn from today. And then, then after that, you end up at a, another company, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I basically, you know, I, I think I, I, I took what I can from, from that world over the course of about, you know, two years, 18 months, something like that. Um, and then, you know, as one would imagine with any entrepreneur, I was like, I want to go out and do my own thing. Um, and was very open with the team there. Scott, um, is a close, you know, personal and professional advisor at this point. Um, and I said, Hey, look, I, I want to start this company air, you know, this is, and this is 2015. Um, and it was, you know, in classic fashion, Shane having a thesis and a name that he had fallen in love with, but hadn't like put together the full framework of the business. Uh, and I think Scott recognized that. Um, and one of my strategies to start the company was to not raise money um, and to go and consult with companies and, and have a core team that got paid to do consulting fees. Um, and one of the ways we were going to kick it off was to partner with media companies and to build uh, a content management system for them that would help us build some of the underlying infrastructure to support a company like Air. And then we could go off and like take it wherever we wanted to. But we would get a bunch of learnings by working with the hardest customer, which would be a large scale media company. Um, and amongst this process, I was pulling together, you know, a little team to go out and do this, uh, tried to convince Tyler Ty and I were living together in New York at the moment. Uh, and I tried to convince him to join me. Uh, I'm convinced it wasn't him. It was his wife that said no. Uh, but that was, that was probably the second time Tyler said no to joining me on doing something. Um, but uh, he, he wanted to stay in New York and he and his now wife were moving in together. 
and I want to do this crazy thing. And, and it ended up being with this opportunity in LA. So we were going to move out to LA. Um, and the company we were going to work with was a company that we had invested in and helped found at Highbridge called Revolt TV. Um, we Highbridge partnered with Sean Combs, Puff Daddy, and launched this rebranded version of MTV. Um, and you know, it was intended to be a multi-platform media company, but we just didn't have a digital strategy in place. It was a television network with a Twitter feed. And I had been working with a lot of the executives to get it there. And they said, hey, Shane, why don't you come in and implement a lot of you know, the things, the strategies that you think are impactful for us here? You know, this startup thing you want to do is cute, but like, why don't you come in as a full-time employee, you know, be the chief digital strategist, run, you know, that side of the organization, report to the board and, and figure this out with us. Um, and so that's what I did. You know, I, I helped go through a restructuring of that business over, you know, 18 to 24 months from 2015 to 2017. Um, ended up only bringing one of my, my friends to join me on that journey. Um, but, I, you know, I loved it. And I think it was the best thing for this company air, uh, because, you know, really taught me how to be an operator. Uh, I, you know, was, was helping manage an organization that was about a hundred, 120 people, um, leading it through a restructuring, which is a really challenging time. Um, and you know, I also got a massive window into how enterprise software in this category was working at the highest level, some of the problems with it, um, and a ton of different industry learnings about the space that, you know, have now proven super impactful for our strategy, you know, at AIR. That's a perfect segue. So let's talk about AIR, which is yeah. a company that I'm assuming, like we haven't chatted yet. So <laughs> this is not teed up on purpose, but <laughs> it's one of those products when you, op you, you know, create a login, you're like, you know exactly what to do immediately. And it's solving a yeah. problem that as we started this conversation talking about, we're all media companies and venture fizz. The, the problem you're solving is something that I deal with every day. So we have all of our assets, whether it's video, images, you know, logos, whatever, on my computer, Dropbox, Google Drive, Canva, and probably three other repositories that I'm not even thinking. Yeah. Keith, you gotta be careful. You know, this interview is quickly gonna become a sales call if, <laughs> if you let it go that way. At the, at the end, I'm running an enterprise software company. So like, right. if Fizz isn't a customer, then all these people watching this are gonna think poorly about my product. <laughs> and it just was a very well-designed product. So anyways, before I get into the pure pitch of why it's an amazing product, let's talk about the origin. So, you know, you kind of talked about a little bit about the founding idea, but yeah, expand on that a little bit more to the point where you're like, okay, I can actually jump in and, and start to build this company. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there's many different types of founders and, and founding teams that do this in various different stages in their careers. Um, you know, I, I think for Tyler and I, we knew we wanted to be entrepreneurs. We knew we could start with a thesis and we would like iterate our way into finding product market fit around that um, and what the market opportunity was. Broad strokes, we had our industry leanings and industry understandings to come back to always. Uh, but we went into this with a simple thesis of managing media in the cloud is really difficult for a whole bunch of people. Let's start to work on that. Um, and I think that for different entrepreneurs, it's different moments when you decide to take the leap. Um, but for us, it was, this is a problem. And as two technical founders, we know we can start to solve it. And we have confidence given our careers that there's a market opportunity around this. We don't know what go to market looks like. You know, we don't know what, you know, the, the customer journey will look like exactly, but we'll pull together our initial team. You know, we could go and like raise a little bit of money to get started 
and then we could figure it out along the way. And so, and so that's what we did. You know, we came together at the beginning of 2017. Tyler quit his job in March. You know, so we really started in like April, um, raised about a million five through the course of that first six months, and then got going with the team. Um, and you know, the first year of it was just building the underlying infrastructure to manage media in the cloud, following through with that initial thesis. Um, and then year two was like, how many times can we experiment on this go to market to find ways to test this infrastructure? Um, so six months in, we launched a Kickstarter with a, with a partner in Brooklyn to digitize home videos. Now, did we care about the digitization market for home videos? Like, yeah, personally we cared about it, but you know, more important than raising $22,000 on Kickstarter was we got 50 terabytes of data to test against this infrastructure. Um, then we said, all right, like, let's get out a mobile app because mobile capture is going to be really important. So like, let's start to experiment around that. Um, and so we put out this mobile app and, you know, a bunch of people were using it, but it didn't have real retention and stickiness. So then we we're like, okay, why isn't it that way? And, you know, we kept looking at the data and we decided to launch a transfer service from Dropbox and G Drive because that felt like the most natural next step. So we launched that transfer service in April, May of 2019, uh, 2018, I'm sorry. Um, and that started to pull in a bunch of consistent usage. Uh, and then we found folks who wanted to transfer large sets of data from businesses. Um, and so we launched that transfer service you know, at the end of 2018. And, and by 2019, the data prove to us what this market opportunity was alongside a bunch of advising that we got from critical advisors early on who helped us build industry understandings around product-led growth, bottom-up SaaS, you know, uh, individual end-user value in the product. You know, we didn't have that lexicon. Just, we're, we're not enterprise software folks. Um, and, but thanks to, to folks you know, like Chen Li Wang and Todd Jackson and, and a bunch of the advisors. And that, that really, that moment instituted in us the importance of having really great advisors. Um, and, and it's still, and even in our Series A, which we just announced yesterday, you know, you see that in that. Um, you see the importance of, of advisors. And, you know, so that led us to then, you know, understanding what the go-to-market would be. We launched a six-month pilot in 2019. It went super well. And then we just launched in, in March of, of 2020. Uh, with all of those understandings from the pilot. Talk about that point of launching, right? So, um, you know, there's two things that kind of relate to the 2020, the year of just absolutely insane bonkersness. But uh, so you launched the product, um, we're heading into a pandemic, and then you're raising capital at the same time or around the same time too. So talk yeah. about, you know, the, building a company while we're in this world of 2020. Yeah, yeah. Um, so to give you, give you context on where we were in March, uh, we'd run this six month pilot. It went fantastic. Uh, all of our existing pilot, all of our pilot customers ended up retaining and paying when we started charging them in 2020. Um, and all of those accounts grew from one user to many users, varying levels, but, but many users through the course of that program. So we had, we had high conviction that this product was going to work when we launched it. Um, what we didn't have conviction around is like how we would get them from hey, I see a marketing site that like some startup threw together and now I'm an active customer. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, onboarding, was the marketing site effective, first user actions. As a product-led growth company, it's not about like a $10 pricing tier. You know, right. It's about an obsession about, you know, that, that you know, self-service flywheel and every point in the customer journey that 
is important amongst that flywheel. And, and we didn't have any data around step one uh, or, or, and step one and two mostly around that. Um, so launch was really about like, let's start to get learnings in those two areas of our business. Um, and, you know, obviously it's a crazy time in the world. We started seeing in February what was happening and, you know, we we're thinking about, do we go remote? Do we not? What's the plan here? Um, and, you know, but it was really like a focus on launch. Um, we, we have strategy plans in our business every like three to four months. There's a strategy plan. And, and the plan we were in was called the hundred day plan. And it was, uh, it was named after, you know, in the, in, for presidents, the first hundred days is, is really important. And they, they sort of characterize all these things that they want to do in the first hundred days. And so it was all about like our first hundred days, the first month pre-launch and the next, you know, 90, 70 days after that. Um, and uh, so we had these, these marching orders of like what we wanted to focus on and when to really refine and iterate. Uh, and I think it was day like 47 where we got into the office and we're like, we shouldn't be here. Everybody should be home. We should be figuring this out. You know, New York specifically was going through a really tough time sooner than, than most folks. Um, and, and so we said, hey, look, we're going to go remote for the next two weeks. Um, and that, that, that was the original impetus. It was like just a yeah, couple weeks. Totally, totally. Um, you know, and then within those two weeks, I think Tyler and I made a really critical decision to put the health and wellness of our employees first um, and said, hey, look, we are going to kick out, you know, us being in person for a year. Um, it was like early, but we were reading a lot. And we were like, there's no point in this being an additional level of stress for our team. Specifically, like in New York, you know, we're, you're a relatively young team. Um, you know, we're all living in matchboxes and like we're not going outside and it's a global pandemic and like people want to be with their families. And so we're like, let's, let's let them plan their personal lives. So we told everybody like, we're going to be remote until, you know, at least July. And then quickly that became at least April 1st of 2021. Uh, and that's where we're at today. Um, and so, you know, the, the early part about that launch, we had this big event strategy plan with one of our existing customers spring place in New York. You know, there's a ton of things we were going to do with the team at Lair. Um, and that whole go-to-market blew up. Uh, and we needed to figure out, like, yeah. what is the initial go-to-market around this product? How do we refine it in this environment? Um, you know, and, and also, like, it's sleazy to sell. You know, it's funny. I gave a talk about sales, um, you know, in, 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 in with this, with this uh, co-working space in New York uh, two weeks before we went remote. And it was all about like how you cold start sell to folks and like email cadences and drip campaigns and how you do it in a way that's like not as brutal as it is because uh, it, it's miserable. Um, you know, and like, that whole thing went out the door. Like, how are you going to send a sales email when like the world is falling apart? <laughs> so tone deaf. People would be like, yeah, it's, just tone it's like, what are you doing? Like, no, I don't care. Uh, you know, like I have no interest. And like, and, and the worst sales emails are these ones where they're like, I hope your health and wellness are doing good. Buy my product for 1099. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's it's so like what are you doing? So, you know, we, we stopped, we stopped sending sales emails. Um, and that, you know, look, as a product-led growth business, we have the benefit of like the product sells the business forward. People use it. They tell their friends. They share it. People come back into the product. 
So that's, that's our most important growth lever. But, you know, next to that is email campaigns. And so we just stopped, stopped sending emails. Um, and, and so, you know, it was a really tough time, candidly, you know, we, you know, at that point we were planning, our goal was to kick off our fundraise at the end of March, beginning of April, off of like some of the successes of, of launch. Um, and that wasn't going to happen because we blew up, you know, our, our, one of our best levers for growth. Um, and so we took April to like reassess, all right, how are we going to grow this business? And we ended up kicking off our fundraise um, at the end of April, beginning of May. Um, and, you know, I, I think candidly, it was a bunch of creativity and scrappiness from the team. Um, we ended up finding ways to fit into the consumer narrative. Um, we launched a map with all the direct-to-consumer brands in New York and asked a bunch of people to, you know, share it and more importantly, buy these products of New York companies. Because New York was really struggling at that time. It got featured in the Wall Street Journal. All the brands shared it. A lot of those brands became customers because they were going to remote. And it, it was just this great organic, you know, moment where we were just trying to help the community and, you know, that good, you know, those good vibes came back to us. Um, you know, we partnered with the community trust in New York and partnered with a bunch of illustrators who you know, were illustrators at the New Yorker. And we launched a drawing campaign just as like a moment of like relief uh, to help support the COVID-19 response and impact fund. Um, and, you know, that helped draw attention to the impact fund. We, we created this digital drawing book on a board on air um, and a bunch of people saw our product and it got featured in a bunch of newsletters and folks came to our product again. Um, you know, we launched brilliant, like a, like I mean, you were doing good, right? But it was an opportunity to do good, but show off, Hey, this is our capability and doing good usually pays off in the long run. Right. Yeah. And it was, look, it was, it was, and I'll be, I'll be totally transparent. It was, it was good with an agenda. You know, it was, we weren't, we weren't like out, we, you know, we weren't the most important, the people who deserve the thanks are folks who are like delivering food and going into the hospitals and like, for, for us, we were like trying to keep our business alive and also do good. And that like that and also should be equally weighted. Like as a, as a modern business today, if your customer and your investors aren't as important as your employees and your community, from my perspective, you're doing something wrong. And and so, you know, for us, it was the alignment of those things. And it, it, it really instituted the importance of that uh, at our company. And. Um, and we were doing fun stuff too, Keith, you know, we launched our best one was we launched this thing called zoom exotic, which was uh, zoom background. If you go to ZoomExotic.com or if you Google it where the number one thing that comes up, it's just a public board on air with a bunch of zoom backgrounds. A lot of them are Joe exotic tailored and it like trended on product hunt, got featured globally. And we've gotten a ton of customers through that. Um, and it, like, it was just a fun, fun exercise for the team. And, and we liked it. Um, and, and our go to market is both product and, you know, growth. It's not, you know, just a marketing person in an office today. It's, you know, a marketing person and, you know, uh, folks in sales and folks on the product team and designers who are all working together to get our story out there. Um, and, uh, that will continue to be the case. Now, is it usually someone in the marketing team? That's the usual first user in the company before it's kind of expands from there. As a, as, as a product? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, 
you know, we're growing into it, you know, to be clear. Like, I don't think we have the benefit of like, you know, a tool that is, uh, is, is extremely valuable for an early stage tech company. Um, unless we're generating a bunch of assets, which now at our stage and through the course of the last year, where we've found we've using we found ourselves using the product more and more because we're recording all of our like user interviews and our sales sales you know uh, calls and we're doing like feedback sessions on the sales calls all on air and we're sending assets to like folks that are covering us like you or you know photographers that we're working with we realized our marketing site we worked with a bunch of designers we're doing all these like creative go to marketing exercises and the product is like proving super beneficial for a lot of that stuff. So the product is becoming more and more valuable to us as we grow up as a company um, and visual work becomes more and more important. But for, you know, an early stage tech company, is it a critical tool? No, you know, I'll be the first to say that. Um, and, and, and so what's really cool is we always test internally before things go out um, and start to refine our understandings of like how to tweak that user experience. And, and I think even more important than our own learnings are our initial customer set. So we'll be super forward and fast to, to get something out. But more important is we'll be really quick to listen and iterate. Um, and that's, that's the most important thing that, that, that is sort of functional in our organization. So how do you position your product against those incumbents? You know, I talked about our stack and I'm sure other potential customers are like, well, we already have X, Y, and Z. So how do you yeah. differentiate yourself in terms of air and, and what you guys do? Yeah, you know, I think the most important set of comps that I think about are other cloud collaboration products. Um, you know, so I, you know, I ascribe to build the notion or Airtable for visual work. So what I mean by that is instead of, you know, document management like notion or databasing like Airtable, we're focused on data management, but for visual work. Um, and, and that's how we're thinking about our business on an ongoing basis. So what they do in terms of visual work, I'm, super cognizant of and aware of because, you know, I res fully respect those teams. I think they're fantastic products. Um, and they're the closest aligned with our strategy. Um, you know, another one in that mix there is Figma, right? And I think for, for Figma as a cloud collaboration product, they're super focused on uh, designers and the part of the, you know, creative cloud that is built around the creation of assets. Um, and for us, it's the other half of the creative cloud. So if our lighthouse is this $31 billion Adobe creative cloud, and we work our way backwards from that, half of that is for 45 million designers. And that's about half, that represents half of that TAM. The other half is for 700 million visual collaborators is what Adobe calls them. Um, and, and that's our market. And so we're building a product for that market. Um, you know, so, so, so that's how I think about our, our competitive set as, as folks that are the most important. Let's go back into, you know, your question, Keith, 95% of our customers migrate from Dropbox and G Drive. It, it's a no brainer decision. It's oftentimes a cheaper product to come into. It's, if, if they're brand forward, if they're working with visual assets on an ongoing basis, it is a radically different, you know, user experience. It's, it's media infrastructure. You know, it is thoughtfully designed for all of those things. So it's, it's a, and I'm not, those products have a ton of value. They're great at data agnostic cloud storage, which is what they're intended to do, not visual work and collaboration on visual assets um, or the organization of those visual assets. And so, you know, for us, I think that it's a really great switch for the user because they know they have a problem. They know a need a platform to service it. 
And so it's an easy step into that. Um, and, and from a macro perspective, you know, there's this industry out there that we talked about, DAM and digital asset management. And, and I think that that category, frankly, is as interesting as knowledge management is to Notion in that, you know, it's a traditional enterprise software category that's sold top down with fifty dollars to $500,000, you know, initial contract values um, that's pitched to executives over a six month period that integrates over 12 weeks. And then everybody from an end user perspective is like, why are we using this thing? It's miserable. I'm just going to use these random tools. Um, and, and so for us, you know, it's, it's a dramatically different, it, it's, it's the exact same enterprise value when we think about, you know, our customers growing in large value and our contract values, our largest customers on air today spend 60 to $80,000 a year. And they said no to dams because they can do that work on air. But, all of them started paying less than $50, you know, with that would be five users in the product. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's, it's super interesting to see where we'll be able to go because of the fact that there's this great enterprise category that we could go, that we'll, 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 we'll get to over time, but we're not selling that way today. Or we don't think about our business that way today. And we're really locked in on this modern category of cloud collaboration um, and how our center of work fits into that, that, that industry. You did, uh, at, when we started our conversation, I talked about your recent uh, fundraise, which, um, you know, was it the conviction of your customers that once you started saying, hey, we're going to start charging for this, they were like, no brainer, let's do this. Like, were the investors just so impressed with the conviction from your customers and their, ability, their interest in paying that made the fundraising process, yeah. it's never an easy process, but still something that, uh, you know, again, not to hone in on the pandemic, but I'm sure it's been more challenging than other times to raise capital. Yeah, you know, I think we'll talk about the mechanics of, of the fundraising. and we can talk about you know, raising it in a pandemic and a global recession. Um, but I think that fundamentally, you know, you have to be super honest with who you are when you go into a fundraise. Um, and I think that, you know, in product-led growth, you know, a, a good founding team has to have a mixture of engagement metrics and financials, and a great founding team uh, can sell off of engagement metrics and have a product that's not even charged today. Um, and, and it totally also depends on your strategy. Uh, but to be clear, Tyler and I are not a great founding team. You know, we're, we're getting there where we want to be great, um, but we do, and we're, we're just not, we're, we don't have the pedigree. You know, we're not like, X person who worked at Y place for Z years and like, you know, have a ton of like, I, I have a, I'm on speed dial with a bunch of venture partners. I can pick up the phone and call. Yeah. We've, we've grinded Tyler and I both to build relationships in the venture world as, as we've done this. And those have come over three and a half years. You know, this fundraise started three and a half years ago and our next one will start four and a half or five and a half years ago. Um, and, and I think that going then into the fundraise, we realized we wanted a healthy balance of both of those things because the engagement metrics are the most important thing for a product like growth company. They're really where we're focused, but folks will, won't be, believe us because we don't have a, as deep of a pedigree. And we've got Lair and Red Sea and Advance It and, and a bunch of folks who participated in our seed, but like we need to show a little bit more. So we've got to be a little bit more revenue forward. We're a New York company. So like they expect us to be a little bit more revenue forward. Um, and, and we have to be honest about that. And so, you know, we started charging our pilot customers at the beginning, first quarter of 2021, right before we launched. They paid. So we're like, all right, like, let's like not charge for the product when we launch, but like 
soon thereafter put like test out these payment gates. Um, and it was working. We were getting people to pay. You know, we grew over 10% week over week for our total paid accounts every single week for the first four months post-launch. Um, and you know, it was, it was a grind, you know, it was product meets Shane phone call, you know, to like have the customer feel happy. But, but like that was simply because we didn't have all the product features like to, to charge people, you know, it was like me being like, Hey, like, can I send you a Stripe link? <laughs> and like, we put a credit card down. Uh, yeah, like you have to, you know, like, let's be honest. And, and, you know, I, I think then that started working and, and our best for our product, you know, the thing we have lights out is once customers activate, we expand to these companies and they retain, um, you know, you know, for, for us, we ran, we ran an L28, which is a, a view of like the last 28 days of usage. Um, and we highlighted that in our fundraise and about 30% of our users use the product every day. Um, you know, we, we looked at our retention numbers and even through, we had a six month pilot cohort through 2019. And then we had, you know, uh, by the time we started our fundraise about five to six months of engagement data, you know, our retention numbers were over 60% at weeks eight, 12 and 15. Um, and, and if you look at retention curves in the industry, you can look at like mixed panels, 2017 report. It's a fantastic report. You know, top 10% is over 48% um, at week eight. And we were over 60% at week 12 and 15. Um, and so, you know, while there were many problems in our business that we had to figure out, it was clear that we had found fit in this, you know, market, in, in this utility tool. And people, and, and, and if anything, we had a ton of conviction, a ton of conviction. And a ton of conviction meaning a 7,000 word notion doc of conviction around, it was literally like our senior thesis of like, this is where we're going, this is our plan, it's super codified and clear, and like, we need X amount of capital to get there, like, get on board with us or please like get out of our way because we really don't have time. And that, that's what led us into the, into the fundraise. And I was hearing some, when, you know, with April, I was hearing some board feedback that people are getting from the board of you need to have capital for five years because we don't know how long it's yeah. going to last. So there was some yeah. scary stuff going on out there and granted the tech industry has been resilient, thank God. But, uh, but those, those some crazy times. Yeah. You know, I, look, I, the first thing I want to say on this podcast, look, I, the venture industry is fantastic. They're so impressive. I learn a ton from them, but like, don't tell me you're open for business when you're not open for business. Like, like this mantra that was going on through April and May, all of you who were pushing it on LinkedIn and this and that, like, come on, you hadn't figured out your investment committees. You were super focused on your portfolio, both things that are super valuable. You know, the most important thing that I would want from our existing investors is to help me before they think about the next thing, especially like in, in this kind of environment. And like, yeah, you know, I just want to like put a nod out there to any venture folks listening, like, please, like just, you know, from, from, from this perspective, like just do ourselves a favor, like be honest, be direct, be upfront. It's a lot easier. Um, and, uh, you know, to go into like the fundraiser, so we launched it end of April, um, beginning of May, um, we ended up getting a, a term sheet by uh, July. And by launched it, you know, I, I, I speak in founder terms. So launched it means we were working on a deck and I was getting on like initial, I'm not fundraising. Hey, you know, here's an update on our business calls. Um, that quickly led to like investment committee meetings by like late May, early July. And then we had a signed term sheet by 
you know, late July. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, it, it took us about 42 days to go from, you know, we're going after this thing, having conversations, building a deck to term sheet signed. Um, a, a lot of folks talk about, and like, again, I can only speak from like our pedigree, which is not like ex founder from Y place. And a lot of people talk about these like two week fundraise and like, or two day fundraise. Like I want a roadshow. Like, come on. Like you, you started working on your deck a month ago. You started working on your deck a month ago. Like you started like having the initial conversations. Like, come on. Like, let's like, just let's, let's like help everybody out and just like be upfront about dates and timelines. Because the problem is, here's the problem, Keith. I learn from watching podcasts and reading articles and hearing stories. And if they're not accurate, I'm going to have this false perception of what it is I have to do to build this company. Um, and so like, yeah, I'm trying to do my best as a founder that's figuring it out along the way to like push this narrative of like, you know, what is truth today? Fake news. But like, but like push this narrative of like my best estimate with my own agenda and preconceived notions of like, this is what I can say is like about right. Um, and, uh, so yeah, that, that was, that was, uh, you know, in our story, you know, we, we basically, we opened it up to more firms than I would have liked to, because we thought that like, who knows what's going on in this environment? Like, let's just super serve our conversations, um, and just spend more time on it. So, you know, I was, it, it was super helpful actually in, in a recession was in, in a pandemic was it was just back to back zoom calls. So like, I wasn't hopping around to like offices around South Park in San Francisco and like, you know, Soho in New York and, uh, you know, just back to back to back to back, back Zooms. And, uh, you know, I got made fun of through the process because I literally, everybody saw me in the same sweatshirt with this like ripped Stanford hoodie sitting in the same chair, you know, day in and day out. And like the beard was growing and it was just like, it was just gross. And every day I had some new notion doc, you know, ready for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, we can go into this for days, but that was our, that was our, well, that I did talk to another founder on for the podcast that just closed. And that was the other thing that they mentioned. The benefit was you were doing these zooms. You weren't flying to California or, you know, totally. you know so it just was better time spent just trying to raise capital. And we interesting to see how that plays into raising capital for companies in the future and, you know, the face to face dynamic. And I will say, you know, any there was only one, we had, you know, a number of firms where it got serious and we went into investment committee meetings. Um, and amongst that lot of firms, there was only one who I had, actually, no, there was no firms who I hadn't met with in person pre-pandemic. Maybe one, maybe one, um, who I hadn't met anybody on their team in person. Right. Um, so so what's, what's the size of the team now and what are your plans in terms of hiring? Yeah, you know, our last, so we closed officially uh, at the end of June, um, beginning of, of, uh, of July. So it's been about two and a half months post. And we've really focused on people and process at the company, um, codifying what it means to work at air, what it means to be a manager, what it means to, you know, wor you know be, be a part of our story and, and where we're going. Um, and uh, so the team has grown dramatically. Uh, we went from about 14 employees to today we're at about 28, 29, close to 30. Um, and uh, I feel like it changes every day. We just hired two folks yesterday. Um, and, uh, you know, the goal for us is probably to settle between 30 and 35 before the end of the year. And just to like, that's the core team that's going to be working on this thing 
until we get to a Series B. Um, and there's a lot to do until then. You know, I'll be super upfront about the problems we're working through at our business. Um, and, there, and there's two of them critically. One is, you know, continuing to find ways to draw people to our product. So some of that is me getting on a song and dance, like, a, you know, a conversation like Venture Fizz and trying to push the narrative of the business forward. Um, but there's a bunch of pillars to that code of market from a marketing standpoint, like SEO, content marketing, audit marketing and campaigns, content marketing, um, social and community. Um, and, and then our best lever for growth is the product. You know, the product is really selling itself. Folks are using it. They're adding, you know, on, on average, uh, 70% of our workspaces have at least one non-core domain. So another folks, you know, a photographer or an agency they work with. And on average, it's about, uh, three different domains for those that have multiple domains. Um, so you get a lot of variance. And then those people create new workspaces um, in, in the product. Uh, they're also, you know, uh, we've been tracking share links. So people share boards and share assets externally and highlight the value of our product. And that draws a bunch of people back to the marketing site. So as a product-like growth business, we have an unfair advantage that the product sells itself. Um, but that doesn't mean we ignore other things to help amongst that process and to sell forward our company. Um, so, you know, we're doing a bunch of things on, on that front, but we're, we're not spending any money on ads um, until, you know, late 2021, if that. Um, we're, you know, we're really focused on building out a community in this category and refining this product. Um, and, and I think there's a ton of work we can do to refine the first user experience, the activation. Even when you come into a workspace today, it's a little bit daunting of a task where you have this like, empty workspace and you want to get started. There's a ton of things we can do to help in that first user experience that we're locked in on. Um, and you'll see us launch a bunch of things through the course of the next five months specifically. Our next strategy plan, our, our first, our, the one that we're in now ends, it's called Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, my co-founder Tyler is, mm -hmm. loves dad jokes. It's miserable. Um, but it's the Earth, Wind and Fire plan. It ends the 21st night of September. So it's coming up. And uh, our next plan uh, will, will be from October to January, and it'll be really locked in and focused on these, these two problems we're trying to work on at the business. Very cool. I love the creativity there. So you talked about, hey, you know, around 30 employees. So what, what advice would you give to founders on building out that initial core team from two co-founders to, to 30 people? Uh, I'd say it's dramatically different from, you know, one to eight or two to eight, and then from eight to 15, and then from 15 to 30. Um, and I can talk about each of those. You know, I think from two to eight, um, it's going to be tough. And like, you're constantly going to, like everybody, people are going to preach this, like, you have to hire the best people. And like, I, I, don't get me wrong. I love all of our employees, you know, but I'm not the best enterprise software product-led growth CEO. Like functionally on paper, I'm not, you know, like I want to be, I want to learn, I want to grow, I want to develop. I truly believe that like, this is my vocation and I obsess about this work and try to get better every day because of it, because I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm having a ton of fun and I want to find folks and Tyler and I have wanted to find folks like that who you know, are really, really passionate about this space and want to grow, want to develop um, and have some you know, background and understandings to lean on, but like are willing to be flexible and iterative and like, because that's what, that's what early stage is, you know, like 
you're going to have a job, but it's going to be five jobs and you don't know which one is going to actually become your job. And, you know, and that's, that's just early decision. So, you know, if you find a candidate in the early stages that doesn't fit in with whatever cultural philosophies or principles you have, like, that's fine. You know, and like, it's fine if they were valuable for three months or four months, like it, it, but if that's the case, like don't spend $15,000 on the recruiting firm, you know, to find that candidate, like be scrappy about it and like be upfront with them and like try to get them in and have them be active and be direct and figure out early if they work or not. Um, we've had a bunch of, of, of folks, not, not too many, but a couple of folks who started off as consultants and now become full-time hires because of that, that philosophy. Um, you know, and then at the like post seed stage, yeah, and then you have, ideally, you have great institutional investors like Lair, Red Sea, and Advancet who are helping you, making intros to folks, helping, anyway, I, I use our investors so much through our recruiting process to help with the sell. Because now you can like reach for some candidates, but they still want like some conviction that like, you know, the seed is only going to last a year and a half. Like, is this actually going to be a thing? Is it not? Are they going to get to Series A? And your seed investors are the best at pitching that forward, even more so than like a salesy founder. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, still, I don't think you're going to find like the VP of X to come over and start with you. And then at your series A, you know, and the lead up to it, you've got a bunch of like, Hey, we're trying to build a business. And that's, that's when people get super excited. And, and the best thing you have to do is define who you are, because that will lead the vision as to like who you're trying to hire. Cause there'll be a bunch of options. Um, and if you don't know who you are at that point, like, codify the culture book, structure your recruiting process to, you know, figure out if those, there's alignment personally, um, because you're going to be building this business for the next five to 10 years with these people. And, and like, we, we just made our first great executive hire. Uh, we brought on this, this guy, Andrew Bartholomew to the team. He was a former SVP of strategy at Squarespace. Um, and he's, he's our, our head of strategy. And, and it was great. You know, that, that recruiting process went super well, I think, and I think he would say this because we knew who we were and he knew who he was, we, we, he wa what he wanted to learn next and the type of environment he wanted to work in. And there was alignment there. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like selling as much as it was like being transparent and open with him about the way that we operate as business, what our problems are, where we're going, who we are as people. And, and there, and, and, and then we just got started working together. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's our, our, our recruiting process in short. And the one anecdote I'll leave next is the best moment you have to hire is with your founding team. And like, you're going to be, you can't hire founders again. Um, businesses are going to be founder driven be from when you start to your series A, it's going to be mostly founder driven because you're not going to really have managers. And so get that right. And whether that's two or five people or seven people, you know, doesn't matter. Like you can have two people who like, are the core people and like others and like they can still be founders. Like founders will work harder than everybody else and you're never gonna be able to hire them again. So think critically about, about that team um, of folks. And I, you know, I have the blessing of, of feeling like I, I got that right with one of my best friends. So I feel super lucky. So what do you think the future of work is? I mean, this has been this massive experience that no one expected. And I think of products yeah. like Air where anything, it's probably more beneficial to have a product like Air based on remote work. So where do you think the future of work is heading? Yeah. Um, you know, I like trying to look at this question as a historian and somebody who's trying to study the space really intently. Um, and, you know, as you look at what has happened 
in the sort of like cloud tooling environment, which is like central in the future of work. Um, you know, th this aspect of like digital transformation, which is businesses moving to the cloud. You know, it's a buzzword, but it basically just means like cloud transformation of companies. Um, you know, you saw this big shift to the cloud in the late 2000s with companies like Dropbox and Box coming out in 2005, 2007, respectively. And, you know, they really helped both consumers and businesses move to the cloud and like become distributed as organizations so you could access things on multiple different devices. Um, and then through the teens of the 2000s, people said, hey, everything is in the cloud. We want to work with it while it's in there. And so you saw this explosion of cloud cl cl collaboration platforms and tools. And I think early on it was tools. It was, hey, I want to do this thing in the cloud. I want to send a deck and like see how people think about it. So there's a doc send. Or, you know, I want to, you know, get some feedback on a video. So there's a frame.io. Um, and what happened is, from my perspective, there is a ton of tool exhaustion where you're using, you know, if you and I are on the same team, you're using 15 different tools, I'm using another 15, and maybe like five have some overlap. Um, and from a business perspective, if I'm running a cloud collaboration tool, one of the challenges is like, I have to get massive distribution and have a super wide TAM in order to build a large company because I'm not going to get a lot of distribution through the organization. Um, unless I'm a product like Loom, fantastic company. Joe Thomas, you know, I've learned a lot from, he's unbelievable. Uh, and the product is so good. And Loom is interesting because it's, it's, a, it's, it can be valuable for a wide swath of the organization, you know, and, and it's not just one team. Um, and true cloud collaboration platforms, Notion, Airtable, Slack, Figma, Zoom is, is becoming that are really focused on being a center of work. And from my perspective, the future of work is going to relate to centers of work. And I think what we're trying to create at AIR is a center of work for visual work. And, and I think when, as, as we think about that, then when a customer uses our product, they migrate over from Dropbox and G-Drive, and then they cancel over time all of these micro tools that they have to use across their organization for collaboration and distribution of content because they can just use AIR as a place where our content is stored, organized, and collaborated. And we're still living in to that product mission with the business, but that's our, that's our strategy. That's, what, that's what's near and dear to us, and that's where we'll fit in, and, and from my perspective, where the future of work is going. Yeah, no, that's totally, totally dead on, I agree. What are three apps that you can't live without? Notion, without a doubt. Um, wow. Uh, Notion again, uh, without a doubt. Um, and I mean, I, the, the like, you know, simple answer here is Slack, I guess, but like Notion. Yeah, we run, like, I, I you know, I, I, I only had the chance to meet a couple folks on their team, but the biggest thank you to them, you know, um, as, you know, not just like a, another founder watching their journey and respecting the hell out of it, but, uh, you know, as like a user, it is, it's so good. You know, it's so, so good, Keith. And, you know, it is the reason why we had a successful fundraise. It's the reason why we're an organized and structured company. Uh, it's the reason why I get in less fights with my family because my life is so organized and structured. And like, it, like it's funny because I go through these conversations with 
some of my friends about like, you just have to get on it. And they're like, I, I'm just, I'm not like a rabid, I like, I, I, I usually I'm not someone who's like so prescriptive to a community, but like, it's just so good. And, and they do so well and I'm so impressed and I'm like fanboying right now, but like, whatever. Um, I, I love it. And we use it for everything to be clear. It's Slack and then it's Notion and Google Meet. And that's, that's our stack for all intents and purposes. How about outside of work? I know you're super busy building the company, but uh, what do you like to do outside of work when you have time? Yeah. You know, I think um, I was just thinking about this one earlier and laughing uh, <laughs> because it's kind of a joke, but uh, I guess I, I sort of prescribed to like my mom always pushed on me this, like the four F's of being Indian, which is like food, faith, family, and film. And like, I love food. I love, love going out to restaurants. Um, and like, I've loved like ordering into a bunch of these restaurants in New York, you know, through, through the pandemic. Uh, my, my brother just had uh, his first baby. So I'm, I'm, I'm loving, I'm, I'm a weekend on being an uncle and still trying to figure out how to do that. So that's been a ton of fun. Um, you know, I think that faith is sort of a, a, a crazy topic. Um, and it's something I'm still evolving into, but um, I think that it's been really cool to, I'm breaking that down to like understanding what I care about. Um, and I think that in building a vocational training program at AIR that our whole team ascribes to, I'm learning a bunch from that. Um, you know, we have a, a, a book club that is, is one of my favorite things. Um, and, and every other week we go through these like reading list discussions. Um, and, uh, and then film, like I, I love, I, I lived in LA for two years and, uh, you know, miss my, my roommates who'd sit in a big, you know, movie theater room of like a bunch of couches with a bunch of 20 odd year olds and, and watch movies and, and, and miss that dearly and, and love, love consuming content. A good, a good show will take you a long way. Very cool. There's so much good content out there right now, especially in the whole TV paradigm. Totally. Well, Shane, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the amazing things you guys are up to at AIR, and of course, all the general advice questions that you uh, were very insightful and detailed about. That's so helpful to get that next level detail. Thanks, Keith. And, and my apologies if I was long-winded. You know, I, uh, you know I, I'm super excited about our next step at AIR, really excited to live into this product mission, um, and more excited to do whatever I can. And I know most of your audience is is venture folks but if there's you know there's other entrepreneurs out there you know drop me a cold note on linkedin and if i don't follow up you follow up and make sure i do um and would love to to help out in, in any way i can well that's our show i hope you found it useful and entertaining if you did please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes also please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry it all really helps us out Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.